As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. See, that's another thing that Bali stole from me. I was 29 when it happened and... I didn't ever want to settle down and get married, but I thought I might partner up with someone and have another baby. It wasn't just my physical look. It was the possibility of that kind of future that was stolen from me and all because of just deciding to go to this place on a holiday. We could have gone anywhere and we went there. In 2002... 
Friends Therese Fox and Bronwyn Cartwright travelled to Bali. It was a dream trip that the two Geelong nurses had saved hard for. It was Therese's first trip overseas and away from her young children. Their dream holiday turned into a nightmare. 20 years ago, on the 12th of October, Therese and Bronwyn decided to go out to Paddy's Irish Bar for their last night in Bali. What happened that night changed their lives forever. Deadly terrorist attacks on Paddy's Bar and the Sari Club in Kuda's Party Precinct killed 202 people, 88 from Australia, including Bronwyn. Therese was critically injured, with third-degree burns to 85% of her body. In fact, doctors did not believe she would survive. The word miracle is not an exaggeration to use when it comes to Therese, even though she's deeply uncomfortable with it. Therese is intensely private, but years after the horror of the bombings and her slow, painful road to recovery, she felt that it was important to have her story on record for her family she's got grandchildren, to honour Bronwyn and to acknowledge the people and to acknowledge the people whose lives intersected with hers in the aftermath of these terrorist attacks. Therese turned to crime journalist and author Megan Norris, who you'll know from previous episodes of this podcast, to put her remarkable story into words. And you can read it in the book Out of the Ashes, The Mother's Love That Healed the Scars of the Bali Bombings. Therese and Megan are our guests for this episode. We start with Megan telling us about the first time she met Therese. The Bali bombings were in October 2002, and I met Therese, it was actually on Mother's Day 2003. Someone from Woman's Day had called me and asked me if I would be prepared to do a Mother's Day story on a, a very injured survivor from the Bali bombings, who was in the burns unit at the Alfred Hospital. It was a Sunday, it was Mother's Day, and my kids were older, so we were going out for dinner, and I said, yes, I would go down during the day and interview her. And I never really give it too much thought. You know, you you go along and you, you do your job and you interview people who are hurt. But I had no idea what to expect. I'd never seen anyone who'd been blown up by a bomb before. I always remember she was sitting in a, a sort of upright special hospital chair in a unit attached to the Alfred Hospital. And she was sitting up in an upright chair in a full body pressure suit. And she'd got bandages from literally from head to toe and her fingers were all gnarled. She was trying to tie a bow in her little girl's hair. Her daughter Katie then was seven. She was on morphine just to get up and go to the bathroom. She couldn't go to the bathroom unaided. And she was tying this bow in Katie's hair and her mum, Dawn, who's since passed away, was trying to help because it was a little task for anyone able-bodied, but it was an impossible task for a woman who'd been so seriously burned. And I remember watching this dynamic and her mum, who was, you know, we're mums, (laughs) her mum was itching to do it for her. Come on, Therese, I can do this. Would it be okay? Should I do it? And Katie sat there patiently, and Therese was very, very, very carefully trying to to brush her hair and tie this bow. And she said, no, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm her mum, and I'm doing this bow. And I watched her do it, and I thought, yeah, it's Mother's Day, and all you're trying to do is be a mum again. All the things that mums grizzle about doing, like 
making the school lunch, tying a bow in someone's hair, tying their shoelace. She just wanted to do those things on her own, independently, again. And I said to her afterwards, she did tie that bow. I do not know how she tied that bow because her she was so injured, her joints had calcified and new bone had grown over the calcified bone. And so effectively, when she had physiotherapy, the physiotherapist had to break that bone over and over. Just moving it broke the new bone over and over. It was excruciating. I, I, rem I remember saying to her, that was quite a feat that you did there. She said, I know. The doctor had said, I'm never going to raise my children independently. I'm never going to live independently again. I'm never going to wear makeup because her face had melted off. She had no face. I'm never going to drive a car and I'm never going to return to work. And her job was a nurse looking after elderly people. And she said, all I want to do is all the things that other mothers grumble about, just the ordinary stuff. That's it. And uh, I went away that day. And I got to the car in the car park at the Alfred, and I just sat in the car for ages, processing what I'd seen. And I felt ill. I just thought, I was shaken. How are you going to go about your life? How, how do you begin to come back from injuries as devastating as Therese's? I followed her over, over the next 12, 15 years, I followed her because she lived near Cindy Gambino, who was the story. I was writing that book at the time. So I was traveling down to Winchelsea to interview Cindy. And those interviews were so paralyzing. I would come back to Geelong and I would not be able to drive home to the Dandenongs where I lived. I was too exhausted and drained. So I would stop the night in Geelong and I would often pop in and see Therese. Therese suffered horribly from survivor guilt. A lot of the survivors, all of them, I'd say, have expressed that in one way or another. Therese spent years, 20 years, tormenting herself with the belief that Bronwyn had been left to die slowly, painfully, a slow, painful death in the rubble in Bali, in Paddy's Bar, where the bomb went off, while she'd escaped. They planned what they wanted was a quiet girls' holiday. They'd got these plans where they were going to go to Bali, they were going to spend a week in Kuta, they were going to go shopping, they were going to go sunbaking. Their only criteria for this holiday was that the hotel had to have a swim-up bar. <laughs> it had to. That was the only criteria they gave the travel agent. So they were booked into this budget hotel. They thought it would be quiet and off the beaten track. It was right in the middle of it all. It was backpacker central. It was full of young budget travellers who'd gone to experience the glitz they were trying to avoid. So they'd had a really quiet week. And on the morning of the bombings, it was their last day in Kuta. They went bungee jumping in the morning and they talked each other into it. And Bronwyn had said to Therese, if I die now, you can tell everyone I died happy. I'm doing something I love. You know, so they were really pushing themselves out of their comfort zone. And by the end of that day, Bronwyn was dead. You know, what was the chances? So they hadn't been out at night. They went out to see the sunset at Seminyak. They went and they sat on the beach and watched the sunset. That was probably their latest night. On the last afternoon after their bungee jump, they were sitting on the bus going down through Kuta, down Leggy and Jalan, which is the party strip of Kuta. It was lunchtime or after lunch, and they spotted all these Aussies in, you know, Aussie gear, piling into the pubs on Leggy and Jalan, on Leggy and Road. And Bronwyn was glued to the bus window. She said, look at all the Australians. They were The Aussie army was out in force, height of the... Uh, end of season breakup so it was full of party people and Bronwyn said oh come on 
we can't go back to the hotel and pack and leave in the morning without having just one drink and one photo at one of those bars. We've got to say we went to the Sari Club. Just one picture. And Therese was like, oh, you know, we've still got a pack. We're leaving early in the morning. And Bronwyn said, one drink. We went out for dinner first. We we're just going to go out and try and find the Sari Club, have a drink, go home to bed. And we actually couldn't find the Sari Club when we were walking around. Didn't realise it was across the street from Paddy's and that's how we just ended up in Paddy's instead. So it was just pure accident. It was pretty packed by the time we got there. Grabbed a drink and started dancing. I think we'd only been there for maybe 10, 15 minutes. There were some guys from a footy club that had come in with surfboards and they had them, they weren't surfboards, they were ironing boards that they were pretending were surfboards. I left the dance floor to get another drink and I remember just a second of silence and it felt like all the air had been sucked out of the room. And then I remember being thrown up in the air and I thought one of these guys has grabbed me and tried to throw me up and lift me. <laughs> but it was the bomb going off and throwing me up into the ceiling. Then I just remember waking up on the floor and it was hot. The tiles were really, really hot. I had no idea what had happened. It was dark. All I could hear was the bottles of alcohol popping and it was just darkness I didn't hear anything but I couldn't see anything and the heat was incredible something took over me and I was just like I've got to be able to get out of here and I crawled out and the ground was so I just remember the heat of the ground but I had no idea what had happened to me I guess from what I've been told, most of the people that were left on the dance floor died. At some stage, I stood up and walked out onto the street. Nothing else was going on around me. I was just concentrating on me. Then I heard people screaming for help. And I'm like, okay, you've got to scream for help. All the lights were out, I remember it was dark. And as, as I was walking, I sat down in a doorway and I thought, okay. And I felt really peaceful. And I'm like, okay, you can go now. It was a really peaceful feeling and I was ready to die. And then I'm like, oh my God, my kids. So I'm like, you've got to get up and you've got to start screaming for someone to come and help you again. And I did. Some guy ran up to me, gave me his T-shirt. And then that's when I think Rodney came. He was definitely, he was working for the UN. And so all of all the people that could come running in to help me, it was all the right people. Once he got me back to his hotel, we walked 500 metres back to his hotel. And I would see like people walk past and guys would be carrying people and I'd think, why isn't he helping me? Because my feet really hurt. I'm like, why isn't he carrying me? And I later realised he couldn't. 
eventually we got to his hotel and that's where I met Catherine Rada by the poolside. Their teachers, they were from Noosa, lived pretty close to where my dad lived, knew my dad. They just knew what to do. They must have known what had happened or what was going on. And I just remember laying on a blanket. All I kept thinking about was my kids. That was the only thing I thought about. And people were saying, well, get the pool water and put the... They were all like, no, no, don't do that. Get bottled water, which they did and started pouring it on me. And by this time, Rodney had gone out and tried to organise a pickup truck or something to get me to the hospital, which they did. And they carried me out on the blanket and put me on the back of the truck, the pickup truck. I don't remember seeing a lot of people in there. I know it was full because the only place left for me to go was on the floor in the corner. So that's where they put me. I remember Catherine Ryder saying to me then, you need to start screaming because you need to get pain relief. So that's what I did. And I think eventually it just knocked me out. Kath stayed with me. So I kept asking about Bronwyn, saying, my friend, I don't know where she is. And then I said, you need to ring my parents and let them know. You need to ring my dad. Don't ring my mum because she'll freak out. I don't know if I described what she looked like. I can't recall. But they were certainly looking for her in the hospital. My family knew that she passed away, but they, the doctors had told them not to tell me until I was stronger. So it was maybe a, a month or a bit longer before I found out. Ne- I never thought that she would be dead and nothing has broken my heart like hearing that. Bronwyn was actually found very quickly, but she was wrongly identified. Bronwyn had got a very distinctive blue butterfly tattoo on her shoulder that instantly her mother hated. (laughs) And she had it done for her mother's 40th birthday. And mum was very upset that the family were going to see that tattoo at the birthday party. Interestingly, it became the tattoo that eventually identified her. But what had happened was Bronwyn was a, a slightly built girl with long blonde hair, pretty girl, long blonde hair. And um, another, in his grief, another young husband had identified the body as that of his wife. And it wasn't until they realised that the body he'd identified had got a piercing. I I think it was a navel piercing. And he said, my wife doesn't have a navel piercing. That's not my wife. And then the coroner rang Bronwyn's mother, Jenny, and said, did your daughter have any distinguishing features? And she said, yes, she did. She had a blue butterfly tattoo. And he said, describe that blue butterfly tattoo. And she described it in detail. And any other distinguishing features, yes, she had piercings. And that was Bronwyn. So Bronwyn had actually been found almost right away and identified right away, wrongly identified. And as a result, her name was taken from the unidentified section in Bali. So in Bali, where relatives were going to, you know, identify bodies in the very early part of the investigation. Bronwyn's photos, all the photos were put in a photographic evidence room. And so a couple of women from Queensland, Katha Byrne and Rada Vanderwerf, 
they were two teachers from Queensland who happened to be in Bali when the bomb went off and they they saved Teresa's life that night. They really did. But they stayed on in Bali to help all the families that were arriving from Australia looking for people who were missing in the explosion. So they were either dead or or they'd been taken to hospital. So they were helping to match families with missing people, either because they were in the morgue or because they were in hospital being treated. They thought that they had seen Bronwyn's photo amongst the photos in the photo ID room and were certain that they had. And they got in contact with um, Jenny Hobbs, Bronwyn's mother, and they asked the family to send over recent photos of Bronwyn. So they took the photos that they'd been sent to the photo ID room. But by the time they got there, her photo had gone from the pile. And so the young woman that they thought was Bronwyn, that they thought they recognised, had been identified as someone else's wife. Otherwise, she would have been identified sooner. So Jenny waited weeks to get a formal identification on her daughter because she'd been wrongly identified, which must have been heartbreaking for them. And Bronwyn, she spent 20 years, Therese, feeling so upset and guilty and suffering this survivor guilt over what happened to Bronwyn, believing that Bronwyn had suffered a slow death, trapped in the rubble, terrified, and probably burned like she was. In actual fact, Bronwyn wasn't burned at all. And the autopsy showed that Bronwyn did not even have smoke in her lungs. She had not even taken a single breath. But when I told her when we were talking, and I said, you know that Bronwyn died instantly, and she started to cry on the phone on the other end. I was ringing her from my home in the Gold Coast, and she's in Victoria, and she started to cry. And she said, I said, are you, are you still there? She said, I, I didn't know that. All these years, 20 years, I've punished myself. You know, I felt so guilty that she was left all alone, trapped in the rubble and died slowly. Some horrific death all on her own. And she died immediately. And she said, that brings me such comfort, just knowing that one thing. She had burns to 85% of her body. 63 or 65% of those were third-degree burns through layers of skin, through tissue, through fat, right down to the bone. And the bone was brittle now from all the heat, calcified, the sweat glands had melted, so she couldn't control her body temperature. And that was it with a lot of the barley burns victims. They had no thermoregulatory system. It, your body stopped working, couldn't keep itself cool. So, you know, the first year that she came home, she spent sitting under an air conditioner. She couldn't go outside that summer. She couldn't keep herself cool. And one of the things that we've talked about in the course of writing this book is it was enough to be disfigured and horribly burned and not look like you. And then she was put on steroids. So the steroids caused this massive weight gain. So not only was she horribly disfigured and burned, she was three times the size. You know, she was a tiny, slight, fit little woman a fit young mum who used to chase the kids down the beach, go for bike rides, walk 25k every morning on a treadmill before work. She was super fit. And suddenly she couldn't do anything. She couldn't feed herself. She couldn't hold a pen. She couldn't write her name. One of her mother's biggest fears when um, Therese was in Concord, Therese was, when she first came to Concord, was in a coma. And she was bandaged head to toe with a little slit for her mouth for a, for a breathing tube and a little slit for her eyes, which was so swollen she couldn't open them. But she was in a coma anyway. But her mother's deepest fear, her mother told me after, was that what if when she wakes up from that coma, that somebody else's daughter in those bandages, that the person in those bandages is not her daughter, but somebody else's daughter, while her own daughter lies in the rubble in Bali. 
I've been through the darkest of times. There's been lots of times where I've wanted to die, not to kill myself, but just to go to sleep and not wake up. When I was at Concord in Sydney, I was out walking one day with my dad and I fell over and I broke my hip. And I was 30, I'd fractured my knock, which is what old people do. So I couldn't have a hip replacement. That was a massive setback. A lot of my wounds broke down again after that. Everything back then was painful, everything. Just breathing. I was dealing with my own mental health and my own physical health. But then I was trying to be a mother to young kids and deal with all their questions and all the mental health issues that they had come up. There was a life that they knew and that changed. It got taken away from them. I was so lucky that their dad and that side of the family just had my back and looked after them. Like I might not be with their dad, but he's a good dad. It was a long time of just dark, hard places. See, that's another thing that Bali stole from me. I was 29 when it happened and I, I didn't ever want to settle down and get married, but I thought I might partner up with someone and have another baby. And that was stolen from me. It wasn't just my physical look. It was the possibility of that kind of future that was stolen from me. And all because of just deciding to go to this place on a holiday. We could have gone anywhere and we went there. She became almost public property in a, a weird kind of way after the Bali bombings because the community were wonderful in Grovedale and in Geelong. The mums at the local school were fabulous. They, they made her by hand a beautiful quilt where they all embroidered messages on it and that was sent to the Concord Burns unit just to let her know that everyone was rallying around for her and for her kids. You know, everyone was helping her. But she was private, so she became known as the miracle woman of Bali, the Doctors at Concord called her the Miracle Woman of Bali because she really is. And she hated being called a miracle. She still hates being called a miracle to this day. It's sort of, I'm not special. I'm not special. I'm just doing what it takes to stay here because I have to, because I'm a single mum with two kids and those kids need their mum. So it was her love for those children that kept her going. She'd rang me before the 10th anniversary saying, um, you're never going to guess where I am. And I said, no. She said, well, I'm sitting outside the hospital wearing makeup, which the doctor said she'd never wear, on the face they said would never be healed, sitting outside in the car they said I would never drive. I've driven myself to work. My kids are now in high school and I have raised them <laughs> and I am on my first day back at work. And I thought, oh, I can't believe I'm hearing this. And I said, that is absolutely amazing, Trey. She goes, yes, never say never. Anyway, she did a story with me, I think, for one of the magazines like Grazia or Mary Claire on the 10th anniversary. And then as the years went, she'd call sometimes and I would ring and then she'd become a grandmother. And I'd say to her each time, any thoughts about going back to Bali? And she'd say, never, nope, 
I'm never going to go back there. I could never go back there. And then she rang me last year in about October and she said, you know, you said I had a book in this. You know, I could write a book. I could write a book. She said, well, do you think I could write a book? I don't think I could write the book, but you could write the book and I could tell you. She said, I feel comfortable. I've known you a long time, 19 years now. I trust you. And, you know, do you think that you'd have the time for it? And I said, oh, we're on a tight turnaround with this. This was last October. It's a tight turnaround. I came back to her and I said, well, it would mean me working seven days a week, you know, seven days a week, 12 hours a day. I'm willing to do it if you're willing to do it. She's, how will we do it? You know, because it was COVID and she's a nurse and she'd worked all the way through COVID. Luckily, though, I'd got years of interview notes from all the previous interviews I'd done. I said, look, I'll revisit all of my old notes. So I dug out all my old notebooks and I had a mum's interviews. And I'd interviewed her twin brother and I'd interviewed her kids. So all along the way, I actually had quite a lot of material to go on and I knew the story inside and out. We started a process of interviews. I'd, I'd interview her nearly every other day when she was on her days off. And then I would start writing. And then I was writing as I was going, but it was full on, 12 hours a day writing it. And then I think the most nerve-wracking thing was before we signed the contract with Big Sky, I said to her, you know, the only thing, Trace, because she's very private. I said, you, you're very quiet. You're very private. The only thing would be that if we do take this book on, you would have to be interviewed to promote it. I can I can do interviews with radio as an author, but the person that's the story is you. You know, your amazing survival story, that's the story. Are you up for that? Because you're going to have to be up for that. Are you up for being filmed? Are you up for having your face in the paper? You know, are you really up for that? She said, oh, I know, I don't know, I don't know. I said, well, you have a think about that and come back to me, because if you're not, there's no point doing it. Anyway, she said, okay, I think I can do that. I think if you're prepared to come and sort of hold my hand through it, I'll do it. I don't, I don't ever talk about it unless someone brings it up. So someone might notice that I've been burnt or whatever. Because I'm in Geelong and it's a small town, most people knew me already or knew my story. So they're pretty good. The catalyst for telling my story was my grandson because he asked me, about why I was different and I had to tell him about my accident and I'm like oh god how am I going to do this what I said was I'd been in a fire and the bad men had started it and I thought you know what one day I won't be here but I will have like grandchildren and I want them to know how much I loved their parents and them and that's why I survived and that's why I came home. And that's the only reason. When she approached me in October 2021, the 20th anniversary was the following year. And Therese felt that at the time she and Bronwyn went to Bali, they were beginning to stretch their legs and travel and do things. You know, her kids were seven and nine. They were starting to grow up. She felt she could do things. And they never got to finish that holiday because of the bomb. So Bali actually changed her life and Bronwyn died. And her 50th birthday is coming and she said, it's like a whole lifetime's moved on. 20 years is a long time. And I feel like 20 years have gone like that. And Bali's holding me back. 
that 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 is the chapter of my life. I, I never got to finish my holiday. That's where the idea came from. And and she'd always swore every interview I ever did with her, every conversation I ever had, no way would she ever go back to Bali. And then she rang me and said, guess what I just did? This was last October. I've booked a holiday to Bali. I said, are you sure? She said, yes. I, I said, who are you going with? I'm going with my family, all my family. They're grown up now. I'm going with my grandson, who's seven. My best friend is going to come with me, Michelle Fogarty, and her young daughter, Lucy. And we're all going to go. And we're going to go. Oh, she said, I won't be staying in Kuta. I could not stay in Kuta. I'll stay in Seminyak or somewhere else. But I want to go back and light a candle for Bronwyn. I want to pay my respects on the anniversary. I want to do that for everyone who can't. I've had a couple of moments writing this story, and I've written really tragic stories, but I've had a few more than a few moments where I've literally been typing with tears on my face. Not because it's so sad, it is sad, but because her courage is just so quiet and unassuming, and she is so humble. She's She is amazing. She takes my breath away. I, I feel quite choked even talking about her. I do. I think it's been the, the biggest privilege of my life to write this book. And actually, John Howard, Bali bombings happened on his watch. So he, when Therese was in the Burns Hospital, a lot of people wouldn't know this. While, while she was in the Burns unit at Concord, he would send flowers on her birthday. He, he rang on her birthday to speak with her mother and father. He, he rang at Christmas to see how she was going. And so when we were putting the book together and I got the, all the pictures done and everything, I thought, I'm going to contact John Howard and find out if he remembers her because I want him to know that 20 years later, she's doing all the things they said she'd never do. So I rang John Howard's office and I spoke with his assistant. I said, do you think that he would remember Therese Fox? She said, oh. and she said, oh, you're giving me goosebumps. I said, do you think that he would remember her? She said, he would. I'm sure he would. She said, would you put it in an email? I said, I just wonder if he'd be interested in saying a few words, maybe. So I wrote this email on a Friday afternoon at like four o'clock never expecting that I'd get an answer, actually. And I was just turning my computer off at about six o'clock on that Friday night. And his email popped up from John Howard. And I read it and he said, of course, I remember her. I remember her so well. And I would like to say a few words. And this is what I would like to say. Uh, he said, this is an extraordinary story of, of hope and love and the power of a mother's love for, for her children and her determination and courage, the determination to survive for them. This is the most humbling and inspirational story. He'd said on, on the, on, uh, two days after the Bali bombings in his address to Parliament, and he said the Bali bombings was an act of barbaric brutality and mass murder, and it should be seen as that. And he said that they, won't, they will not crush us. Terrorism will not crush us, and it will not crush the Australian spirit. And I think that's what this book is. 202 innocent holidaymakers lost their lives in the Bali bombings. Two separate explosions, one at Paddy's Irish Bar, the big car bomb over the road that went off 20 seconds later, killed more people, injured hundreds. 88 Australians lost their lives, including Bronwyn. Terrorism did not crush Therese's courage. It did not crush her spirit. So I was still an outpatient at the Alfred when the trial was happening. First of all, I looked at these people and I thought, they don't look evil. They don't look like the kind of people that could do this. And then I thought, well, they've done it. 
They've changed my life. They've killed these people. They need to sit in jail for the rest of their lives and think about what they've done. I was really against the death penalty. I didn't want them to be executed. But then I found out about how quickly you can be radicalised by extremists. And when the death penalty was handed down, I thought, yeah, that's probably the best outcome. These people need to be gone. But they just look like normal people. They didn't look evil. And I thought, how could they do that? Even now, I try not to give them that much room in my thoughts. I don't hate anybody because I don't have time for that. I really want to get on with my life. Not that there's going to be closure, not that I'm ever going to forget about what happened, but I want to start living my life again. I want to be able to travel again. That was taken off me. I want to show my kids who are adults not to fear the world and that you need to live before you die. And I want to go back and say goodbye to Bronwyn because I don't think I ever got to say goodbye to her. If it was just me, I probably wouldn't have done it, but then I realised there are so many other stories involved in my story. I need to acknowledge that. And this is my way of saying thank you. Thank you to our guests, Therese Fox and Megan Norris. There's details in the show notes about the book Out of the Ashes, The Mother's Love That Healed the Scars of the Bali Bombings, written by Megan Norris. If you've been affected by anything discussed in this episode, you can phone Lifeline on 13 11 14. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, recorded at a Hub Australia media studio. HubAustralia.com. Find the workspace that's right for you. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.